Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Steve Edelman, who is here to talk about his new book, Nocturnal Admissions, Behind the Scenes at Tunnel, Limelight, Avalon, and Other Legendary Nightclubs. Steve, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you. Could you talk a little bit about um, why you decided to write about your career, your history with nightclubs and working in nightclubs? Well, that's a good story and um, probably not the answer you'd expect because I've been a writer my whole life. And I always tell people I'm sort of a writer who got sidetracked in nightlife for 30 years. And even when you're in the nightlife business, you do a lot of writing. You're writing press releases. And, you know, I've probably written, you know, five novels worth of stuff uh, regarding my businesses. Um, So um, over time, um, as a writer, I was sort of taking notes just about things that happen in life. And of course, you know, when you work 20 hours a day, whatever it is, right, as much as I do, those notes happen to come, you know, from your work environment. And I put all these years and years of notes together. And my sort of take on the world is probably a humorous, you know, kind of a humorous look on things. I've been called anything from a young, uh, you know, less attractive Larry David to a, you know, older Jerry Seinfeld, because I have an observational way of looking at things. And sort of those notes sort of made up the book. And I, I, you know, when I I lived in Hollywood for about 10 years, I had an agent, I wrote scripts, um, things like that. Uh, And my agent keeps saying, you've got to write a book because these are, this is really funny. And as an agent sort of book person, he would say, you know, this is a world that people kind of know, but they don't really know. They know the outside of it, but not the ends of it. And, And my clubs happen to be some of the world's most either famous or infamous clubs. So he thought that made for a very interesting story. Those those were all the notes I had. So I I set out to write the book. And then the pandemic sort of offered me a little free time. Which is always really good, right? It's good, yeah. (laughs) No, and it's really great because you do. You give us this um, bit of an insider. Like, what is it like to run the clubs and the ins and outs? And then you'll throw in these really hilarious stories throughout it. Um, So you've broken this book up into kind of three parts that kind of go into your around, you know, your your roughly each are around 10 years, right? Yeah, yeah, Um, three decades. That's right. Right. To your career. And you start out by you're from Boston, right? You're from Massachusetts area. So you start out by kind of talking about your experience in coming to New York. And I think that and you start with like 1989. Could you I think people have this idea of what New York is like today, um, but some don't really think about what New York was like in the late 80s and the early 90s. Could you kind of sort of set the picture, sort of set us up for where we're entering? Right. Right. So, you know, I guess you could say New York was less gentrified. So when I came in, the clubs, if you know Manhattan at all, were sort of on the west side of Manhattan uh, uh, and on the, on the river. So in that area was warehouses and sort of like the Wild West. So that's where sort of all the activity took place. Now, you drive by there today and it's all condos and, you know, the high line runs right there, uh, if, you know, if you know New York. So it was definitely a little bit more of the Wild West. And I, I guess what people 
I found in, you know, doing a lot of press and talking to people about the book, what people's, there's a romantic time. You know, I'm not saying going back to like the 40s and 50s, but, you know, there's a romantic time about New York and nightlife and all the things that were happening. And it's around that time. And I think that was a big part of it is it wasn't as gentrified as it is now. Right. And so you kind of set this up. And when you think about um, just what nightlife looked like at that time, it's very different than what we think about. Um, Even in reading uh, your book, like just the amount of work and effort that went into creating that scene is it's kind of amazing. Right. And what that looked like. I mean, you know, that was the era. I mean, I don't it was they called them sort of mega clubs where, you know, these clubs would fit three, 4,000 people. I mean, the, probably the listeners know there's the Limelight, which is, you know, maybe the most famous club ever beyond Studio 54, Tunnel, the Palladium. These are huge spaces, right? So how do you put all these people, how do you fill them? And one of the things you needed to do, you needed to pull from sort of different crowds. So you would have like, I guess you'd call them promoters who would help bring people in whether they'd be doing birthday parties and events, you know, in, the, in a space like that, you're doing seven, eight events, smaller events on one night. You bring everybody together, and when they mix and walk around, that's what makes a great nightclub. So you got people from the gay community, you got people from the hip hop community, all these different communities, and when they come together, I think that's what that was sort of the the recipe in the early '90s for a great nightclub. Right. And it's interesting how you even got into this, right? You sort of set it up by talking about moving and coming to New York. And you did not come into this thinking that you were going to make a career out of working no. in nightclubs. <laughs> no, in fact, I, I didn't even go to a nightclub till I was, I don't know, in my mid-20s, which put me, you know, years behind when I was in grad school. I started out in graduate school for economics. And I got into uh, the nightclub business because I met a guy and he said, look at, I'm looking to have someone help me put the numbers together and the business plan for a nightclub. So me just out of grad school saying, sure, I can do that. He's like, you know, great. Of course, I had no idea what I was doing. I never had done a business plan, but when I wor- started working with him, I sort of got a love for the nightlife business in a way that I saw that you could come up with ideas and do things and then a week later see the result of those things and then start over again. You know, it's like you could build and come up with any idea you wanted to and get sort of immediate feedback. So I thought that was very interesting and challenging. And um, I ended up going to New York. This is totally what a story this is. Is Somehow, I don't even know how I did it. When I was in Boston, one of the first events I did was book RuPaul to play at this club in Boston. I'm thinking to myself, now how in thinking of today's world, what did I do? Call her on the phone? Did I fax her? Like, how do I even do that nowadays? I didn't email her. I don't know. I don't think she had an agent. So somehow I got her to go to Boston um, after I had done some pretty bad events. That event was really good. He went back to New York and happened to be staying on the couch of one of the biggest club owners in New York and said, hey, I met this guy in boston and you should you know hire him for your the new club you're opening up so the guy called me got my number again i don't know how he contacted maybe left a he like i guess he left a message on my voicemail and i went to new york and i interviewed him and he goes i love you i said well love me i had zero experience nothing in nightclub nothing in business he says 
how many nightclub people to, do you know that are working on their PhD in economics? They go, you're hired. He was enamored by that. I've never, he said, he never seen anything like that before. Right. It was a double negative, which he didn't understand. <laughs> I had no experience in business and no experience in nightclub. So as I say in the book, I had to set out to really learn things. And I, I sort of call myself the first nightlight detective because I would go around late at night and taking notes. That's one of the, one of the ways I started taking notes and saying, you know, I got to learn this business because, you know, I'm suffering from a major, from major imposter syndrome here. Like this is not going to work. And I was staying on the guy's couch. <laughs> no, and that was one of the things, like one of the things I think was really interesting as I was reading is that you kind of talked about that, that idea, like, pretending you're Sherlock Holmes and putting on this persona and needing to figure and and sometimes um not knowing meant you had to eat a whole steak that you probably shouldn't have eaten right like you 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 kind of there's some things that are you know you're just throwing into the fire but trying to figure out that business and and what you needed to do to kind of learn about it which is really a great part of this insight into like what do you do when you know nothing and you you're going to make this but you're going to make this work Right. And then, and then, well, you know, like I said in the book, like I, you know, maybe I should get to go to the bookstore and uh, in those days, not online and get like the nightlight book for dummy that doesn't exist. I couldn't ask the guy who just hired me, who was couch I was staying at, like, so what do I do now? So I had to fake it. You know, what do they say? Fake it till you make it, I guess. <laughs> And it seems, too, that there were ways that, you know, you started to meet certain people who had connections or started to have to find ways to, like, um, go into other nightclubs without them really knowing that you're trying to poach or, or learn from them um, in order to make your nightclubs work and viable. It was a very strange thing because now this big nightclub opens up in New York and I which is none of it was on me. I'm giving credit, right, for this. It's called the Roxy. And we. it was a huge, the, it, it became, you know, famous for 20 years. It was the biggest gay night in the country. It was, you know, any celebrity you can think of from that period. You know, there's a lot of photos of them and things like that in the book. Came, and it was a really big thing. So I got all this credit. And I was telling people, wait a minute, it had nothing to do with me. Zero. Like, I had nothing. And they took that as, like, false modesty. So my reputation kept growing. So when I went to other clubs, I'll, you know, there's a kind of a courtesy. Oh, wow, this guy's a real big shot. We'll let him in. And, you know, yeah, yeah, I was there poaching and, and trying to do what I do. But there's sort of a courtesy in New York. I was a kind of, I guess you could say a mini, despite of myself, kind of a mini celebrity in that world. Uh, and, you know, my imposter syndrome just kept getting worse and worse. It just kept, you know, going worse, getting worse and worse. And sometimes you have these things that happen that you don't even expect them to happen. One of the stories and one of the, the, you know, you have these characters who you talk about and people that you talk about. But I love this story about your grandmother um, kind of coming out and visiting. And so sometimes things happen that you didn't expect, but that are great and work really well for you. Well, all, well, all the times things happen that you don't expect, right? That was the thing. And this was one of the une really, really unexpected is, my, you know, my grandma shows up and she's with her, you know, 70, 80 year old friends. They took a bus, you know, to see some a Broadway play. And the ironic thing was, I talk about her you know, going out to dinner and, and she's very social, you know, four foot two with a giant hat. You know, uh, we go to Robert De Niro's restaurant somehow, 
you know, now Robert De Niro was enamored with her. I don't even know how he, she, you know, how that even, you know, the matron he brought her because she was so vivacious and such a character. And then she goes to the club. And I talk about these famous uh, club people that worked there in the 90s called the club kids who were sort of dressed up and, you know, crazy and like professional party people. And they saw her and they thought she was the greatest thing ever. And they just took her under their wing. And she's dancing around. I'm like, oh, my God, my Nana's going to die here at the hands of the club kids. I got to do something. And then they left and they said, can we hire her? She was the best. She comes back. We'll pay her fifteen hundred bucks and we'll call her disco grandma. And she'll be the she'll be the the she'll be the event for the night. I said, I don't think she's for hire. She ain't coming back. She's not for hire. (laughs) And she didn't know what was going on. She says, oh, my God, these kids, they love me. They're so – look at how they dress. They're so much fun because she herself was a flamboyant dresser. It was yeah, something it, else. It's great. And, like, all of this. And you have, right? Like, so throughout the book, there's these sort of great stories like that that you bring up. And and you also um, – so another thing I thought was really – I think in that sort of that – so you start out, right, and thinking about New York and being in New York. And you um, talk about your yurtle the turtle and your yurtle syndrome. And, and so I thought that was really interesting and sort of carries through. So could you um, talk a little bit about that, too, and, and kind of what you're seeing? Well, it you know when I was writing the book, a lot of people it it I want to sort of go back a little bit and talk about you know the book is really when you go get through the book it's more than just like sort of fun stories you know it's sort of my journey and you know I always say you know be careful what you chase because in the end all the running better be worth it so it's a story about me you know there's all these things about me being thinking I made it and then people thinking I was you know thinking, oh, I was John Malkovich or I was Steve Jobs. Like, oh, I made it, I'm famous. So what you're chasing. Um, And also in the book, which you're touching upon is, there's a lot of things in business that you learn um, that are unconventional. In fact, when I was writing the book, one of the publishers thought it was as much of a non-conventional entrepreneurial book than it was anything else. And the the idea of, of, there's a Dr. Seuss children's story called Yurtle the Turtle, where, you know, he tries to be, and I learned this later on in my, in my career, is that, you know, when you're coming up, you want to be king of everything. And sometimes when you're king of everything, you end up being king of nothing. So I learned that, you know, and when I was starting, I had clubs in New York, L.A., Singapore, and I quickly learned that it's better just to focus on things that you can really sort of put your arms around and really keep control over, especially in the Nike business. So lesson learned. Another thing you have kind of throughout are these laxiums, right, that you um, sort of share. And so do you want to talk a little bit about your choice? Um, and you you have what, about a dozen of them, I think, throughout yeah, the book? Yeah, there's almost 20. And the idea was laxium comes from something that I call learned axiom, which means something I've learned from the nightlife world that I consider now a fact. And some you know they 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 um they cover life they cover business um you know I talked to I worked with for example I work with um one of the probably probably the famous the most famous club owner ever in New York named Peter Gation who was the club king of the nineties I talk about things that he taught me right so one of the things he taught me was look at why go out there and open up a a club or a bar that fits three hundred people right. When you can spend the same amount of time and open up a club that fits, you know, uh, 2,000 people and then capitalize on your success. 
So he said, I only open up mega clouds because I don't want my success to be limited by capacity. So, you know, I, that's one thing. And I also have something that he also taught me, which is called never hear, never hear, uh, don't let people hear you pee, which means during, 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 during um, uh, business meetings, he would just go into the bathroom and you would just hear him going, you know, and, and to this day, I, I, I say I still, it was so distracting that I flushed the toilet before I go because I don't want anyone to hear me. So he taught me both. <laughs> no, I have. I, I love that because you often have people are like, we're on Zoom or I'm going to put a phone in my bathroom. It's like, no, there are places people do not need to find you ever. Man, I mean, right? he would just leave. There'd be five people that he'd go there and there'd be this loud noise. And, and he, the door wouldn't be shut. And it was so distracting. Like the meeting was over at that point in time. But I never I, did that. I, le- I learned not to do that. Another thing is that you also had to figure out in like who you could and could not trust right like you talk about um how like you know because then because often especially during this time the nightclub was a cash business in a lot of ways like in you know and so you have some stories of like if we're you're thinking of that sort of the business savvy in that sense like navigating who we can trust in these spaces and in this business and and you know, I, I, it's kind of a funny story now, but I point to a manager who probably stole $30,000 with a really interesting scheme. And he was a guy you would never think would st- would take money. And, and, you know, when you asked and he had one or two accomplice, accomplices and when they, when we asked them why they did it, the only answer was because we could. So right. it's about having systems, like, and anyone can contest in their business about having systems in place. Yeah, and and you know, I was wait, reading- wait, the, fun, the funny ending to that story is we had him taken out in handcuffs to like show people not to steal, right? It was a, actually my partner did that it was very draconian. So as he's getting put in, in the, and he was serious, as he's getting stuffed in the police car, he yells down the street. So I guess this means you're not going to give me a recommendation for my next job. Wait, <laughs> and here's the thing. Where's the thing? But I did give him a recommendation for his next job because he went to my competitor. Right. And I thought, this is perfect. I'll recommend him. So it was the <laughs> ultimate, it was the ultimate screw you to my competitor. And it works every time, right? <laughs> well, and also, you know, I, in reading this, I was thinking, you know, I was going to nightclubs in like late eighties, early and midnight. That was like the time I was going to clubs. But a lot of times I, I grew up in the twin cities. So I was going to first Avenue. I was dancing, but it was more right. But these, you talk about like these huge, um, like set changes and, and thousands of dollars being spent on just designing. So could you talk a little, because it's in, it's sort of incredible and does not happen all over. Right. Like, so can right. you talk a little that, bit about made, like that? Yeah. That's what made New York. This, this is a very good point because, you know, back in the day, New York was considered the heyday of nightlife. It's because of the mega clubs I mentioned and, and all the things that set changes and there were a lot of creative people that did this. And I keep going and I, and, I, and I point this out in the book. You know, back in those days, there were just a lot of really talented people who took nightlife very seriously. And the other thing about New York is you had the size, you had the, you had the, um, you had the population for that, right? But, and you also, in New York, were able to stay open late. So you could still serve alcohol until six in the morning. And so you put all those together and you have an environment that's hard to create in other cities. It really is hard. And nightlife in New York. But, you know, and I also point this out in the book. 
you know, to me, you know, nightlife, whether it's in the Twin Cities or, and this is the underlying, one of the underlying themes of the book, it's always in my mind been a place where people can sort of get together and, and meet and talk. And, and in today's, you know, divisive world, um, you know, sort of the differences sort of meld away when you're at clubs talking together. I've always told people, if you really want to learn something, you know, go to a nightclub and, and just start talking to people who you would never talk to, uh, you know, nine to five during the day. So I think that's the sort of um, the uniformity and uh, sort of the shared experience that we all have, whether it's the local bar in uh, where you are. Uh, what's the town again? I'm in Macomb. Yes, in Macomb. we have a local bar. Right. No, no. It's, whether it's the local bar in Macomb or, you know, the giant nightclub in Las Vegas, right? That sort of interaction of one-on-one is still the same. Right. Which is really great. And you kind of talk about how what you learned in New York and then you go back to Boston and you talk about how um, you were going to, you know, find a way to make what you had learned work even if it can't, even if the club can't stay open till 6 a.m. or serve alcohol all night, right? And and how that can work. So what was that kind of like um, leaving New York and then going into a whole a different great, environment? That's a great question. When I, when I left, this is, has a lot of interesting subplots to it, that question, because when I left New York, it's because Giuliani had, you know, cl- declared war on New York. It wasn't just, it was the clubs in the West Side. It was art. It was everything, right? Clean up Times Square. You know, he's the same. I'm not a big fan. I won't get into that, but he's the same Giuliani as he is today. And uh, I remember standing next to him um, at, when he was, uh, uh, had a shutting down limelight uh, and a you know, big press conference. And, you know, it's like the old James Comey said, the worst place, the most unsafe place to ever be is between Giuliani and a microphone. So um, I watched that. I ended up in Boston um, and I said to myself, this coming together of all these groups can really happen in Boston, but it's going to have to happen in a different way. And then I hit, hit upon one thing that people hadn't really focused on. It's the largest student population in the world there, right? So I thought, okay, you know, fun students, there's a gay community, we can recreate this in a different way. And, 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 and we were able to do that. So that was, that was a, a, a fun experience and a learning experience because, you know, before that, Boston was known as, you know, hey, a man's man power, you're drinking beer, you know, and, the, and that kind of stuff, right? Go to the pub in Southie and, and, and it's also known for, you know, bands too. It's a great live music town. But it, it was interesting because I found, and I even allude to this in the book, is that, uh, you know, people I found are people are the same wherever they go, you know, whether it's uh, Boston, L.A., Singapore. I found people and people in nightclubs in general are pretty much all the same. Yeah, along those lines, you have some of these places you sort of give us an insight. And so one of the things I loved was when you were talking about um, road managers, and you have like your four different types of um, tour managers that um, are going uh, that you see as you're coming through the club. And those kind of ins- I just that made me laugh, right? You have That's these great insights into that. Uh, the people <laughs> in the music industry just love that part. They're like, Oh, my God, you nailed that. Because it's, you know, everybody, everybody that's ever dealt with that sort of behind the scenes in live music. But I don't know if anyone's ever categorized them and put, you know, labels on them. But yeah, that's good. Yeah, thanks. Because a lot of people from the from the industry like that part. 
Yes. No, it's wonderful. Right. So you have these little things. I have to say that um, I really love the story. And so you have all these stories, but I had the Perry Farrell story and how Perry Farrell was going to was like brought along his sort of his entourage, which was not the entourage you would expect and right. wasn't really sure he would be able to DJ for this large club um, or this larger audience was a lovely story um, of thinking about sort of giving us insight again into some of these performers and and they're sort of what they are thinking when they're coming into these spaces. That's right. Yeah. Yep. So could you talk another thing that you started to do that you were starting to see was that you could, um, and, and this goes a lot. You, you tell one of the stories you tell is about Iggy pop, but like that you were playing, doing one thing. So playing music early in the night, in the, in sort of the day, okay. and then sort of really quickly transitioning over to a dance floor. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, so could you talk about like that business wise and and what that kind of was like right. and looked and like that, for you? When when I when I came to Boston, um, the club had existed in one form or another that that I sort of took over. We took over like six clubs, and they had started a model where they would do live live bands early, a regular concert, then kick everybody out, and then do a dance night after. And, and the reasoning was, you know, you only can you know you only can make money when you're open. So the, the problem with that is you got to transition between the two groups. And in the book, I use a particularly extreme example where you had Iggy Pop, you know, playing early. And then afterwards, we were doing this big party for this uh, porn star called Janet Jameson. I think the event was called Erotic Island. So and so you have to think about it now. You have to set up all the props but when the band comes, a band just wants four walls and a black room, right? They have their own visuals and stuff. So we had all this stuff stored, you know, up in the trusses, like giant beach balls. And we had big, giant, you know, 60-pound bags of sand off to the side. Where, Well, the Iggy Pop crowd, it gets a little rowdy. So they were like all of a sudden and very loud. So the, the sound was reverberating. And now you have all these giant suns you know, that are hanging from the trusses, falling into place, right? All the beach balls falling out and people finding bags of sand and, and it, while the show is going on. And, you know, we had we had lifeguard chairs off to the side. They were pushing them, you know, into the, into the venue because people were climbing on for better views of the show. So it was a big chaotic scene. So in the book, I, 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 I talk about, I don't know if you know Spinal Tap, but there's a, a manager, the, the manager with the cricket bat, that was like his manager and he was losing his mind. Right. So I, the story goes, I'll sort of give it away is that he's going crazy, threatening me with a cricket back. And I pull him off to the side and I go, I have a solution. Right. So at the end, um, the band goes upstairs. I bring the porn star over to, and they sign autographs and they say, hi, and they take pictures. The manager comes to me and said, the greatest idea, the greatest show we've ever played. Well, and you know what's really fascinating? Like throughout the book, there's these ways in which you kind of talk about how you have to navigate, whether it's inviting um, like someone to, you know, you can come back and see the show. You can bring your kids and meet Justin Timberlake, whatever it might be. Right. But that you're also like showing about how this like sometimes the best laid plans mean, you know, don't work like you have to think on your feet. And how do you sort of navigate and how do you um 
like think about what do people want or need and how can you help people to get us all to the point we need to be at there's there's a laxium um you know i i uh, have in the book which basically says is the power of yes which is there's always a solution you just got to stay calm and be ready to think out of the box and don't be stuck in what you thought was going to happen deal with what they're not and certainly nightlight teaches you that yeah like i think uh, you know in reading this there's so many different personalities and especially like you know i bring up your tour managers but you have this you talking to talk about this with celebrities too like there's so many personalities you have to navigate sometimes you can't even look at someone right um and so like that bringing that up and like sort of talking through how you have navigated and negotiated that is really fascinating throughout the book and my, I, I, I always tell a funny story is that when everybody, when you're writing the book said, oh, there's a lot of photos in the book, but really none of me, there's one or two of me, but, but none of me in celebrities. So everyone's like, well, you got to have pictures. I said, I don't really have any. I said, the only picture I have of me that I could find, there's a picture of me in front of Avalon in Hollywood, where it's, um, there's, I think it's Nicole Richie was her name, Harris, Paris Hilton. And they're promoting a show called The Simpletons or something. Simpletons? The Simple Life of yes. Oh, Simple yes. Life. Right, right, right. Exactly what show you're talking about. Yes, it's those right, two. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm standing there and I'm looking to my right and there's a giant steer, like, you know, a, a two-ton steer. Like, looks like it's going to kick me in the, you know, because they're promoting, I don't know, maybe they're going out in the country. That Maybe that was the show, yes, right? That, that was. was it, right. All right, right. So there's a look <laughs> on my face like... You know, it's right out of like, you know, epic fails. And that's the only, I said, I don't think you want that photo, but that's the only photo I have. The point being that, you know, my thing is just to leave people alone. And, and you know, I don't run up and take pictures. And and there's an old, a famous, um, the one of the most famous Hollywood agents, uh, a quote from him, a famous quote is, you know, talent always rules. And that means, you know, if it's good to have people in your club and they're respecting the club, Great. Treat them however they want to be treated and and be, you know, throw your ego out the door because in the end it's business. Right. And so you, you know, you're New York, Boston, this very East Coast, and then you move all the way to L.A. and Hollywood and that area. So what was that like, that transition from, I mean, East Coast living and East Coast folks are yeah. quite different, quite different. Um, a chart. <laughs> I have a chart in the book, East Coast. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Was- which is, which um, somebody, I lived in Philadelphia for a long time. So right. somebody who is very East Coast, who knows that East Coast, that chart really made me laugh. Cause I'm like, yes, right. yes. <laughs> yeah. It's a big, it was, it was real. you know, I, I suffered a bunch of culture shock. You know, um, and that was that really was a culture shock going from uh, New York to um, uh, Los Angeles. But, you know, I had a lot of experience. I think nightlife taught me well of, you know, uh, sort of observing and patience and sort of understanding your environment. I even I if if you remember in the book, I even have like a little sort of like pseudo script of a few pages about, you know, sort of a typical dialogue that happens in LA, I call it transactionalism is, you know, it's, it's a one industry town uh, as far as my experience was. So everybody wants to know what you can do for them or not do for them. And you sort of just get it. Um, you sort of, um, you sort of deal with it, but here was the funny thing about it. As you go to different places, people 
have a, I, I use the word prejudice, but a preconceived notion of nightclub guys, right? So in New York, you go out to eat and you're like, oh my God, he must be like Tony Montana or, you know, from Scarface or, you know, so they look at you one way. In LA, they love nightclub people. I don't know why. I kind of know why now, but they love them. So you treat, you put on a pedestal because they don't have a lot of nightlife there. And their minds, right, and people in the, in, in the, in the entertainment industry, oh, all celebrities go to your clubs, so you must be able to help them. So, wow, you're a really important guy. None of that's true because I don't even talk to any of the celebrities when they go there and know none of them. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You get treated. They treat you like you're, like you're a king. And then I, I talk about Singapore. I go there and they treat you like, you're, you know, they bow like you're a, you know, a CEO of, you know, you're a businessman. You're, a, oh, my gosh, look at this big brand and they talk about brands and so you're considered a very serious businessman so you never consider that anywhere else. i've never was anywhere was anywhere else in the world where people could you know ask me my business advice like you know will you lecture no lecture on business which i did at the singapore management university like okay <laughs> I can tell you it all. Yes. No, I mean, my university has one of the majors you can major in is like music business, right? But this is something that is not, I, it's not, you know, an entertainment industry and entertainment business isn't something that we have all over the place, right? So yes, we no, usually don't is, think about no, it. This is, this is not even talking about music business or nightclub. This is talking about the success of a success of a, right, of a businessman, you know. It's like, you know, I'm Richard Branson or something. Or who, or, you know, who knows? You know, they want to, they want to know my business acumen. They, you know, they don't like that. The, the industry is just another industry. So it was, I, th I found that very fascinating. And, and I also talk about if you ever want to find a culture, just go to the, go to the airport and look at their bookstores. And, and if you ever want to know about a city in Singapore, it's all business books, right? And, and in LA, it's what? Just tabloids and, you know, the Hollywood reporter and, Right. And I and I do love, like you kind of, you know, there are things like you talk about um, sort of the A list, B list, C list. You have some sort of lists in there. And, and so you talk about that celebrity culture in L.A., in Hollywood, in those areas um, and, and and things that people know. But you kind of lay it out, which I think is really how like I don't know if helpful is the right word, but I love that you're doing that. Right. Like you're kind of like, yes, we, we you know, we often talk about A list stars or B list or C list or other but here's what that kind of means. And right, here's, here's how it means. Right. <laughs> yeah. here's, here's exactly who's on that list and who's not, right? Yeah. Right. And, then, and then I go into, I think that that, that shepherd is actually called alphabetical order, right? Because then you, go into the, then you go into the gray areas, right? Oh, my God, there's Bs that think they're As, but then As that are only A pluses who would never be considered an A, who think those Bs are Cs. So there's a whole world that moves. And by the way, I don't get any of it. I'm sort of one. I don't. I don't use that. I'm not the guy. We have like doormen and other people who you know use the alphabetical thing. But you know, I, I there I observe it. I learn it. I get it. And I, I love about that. It. And that they're like, and also like that idea, like like nightclubs. Like there are people who have spent a lot of time 
sort of navigating that and that system and really know and that's their job. And and I appreciated that too, of getting people to think about, yes, we think about, like you said, nightclubs and, or that every celebrity wants to own a nightclub in the LA, Hollywood area, um, but that there are the nightclub workers are really knowledgeable about these things and sort of know how to move through them and, and what that looks like too. So there's a lot of respect for um, the folks, not just the folks whose name is out there, but the folks who are doing that work every right. day. It's a nuanced in in the, in the bigger cities. It probably gets you know less nuanced as the cities get smaller and smaller. But same idea. Everybody knows it's the same kind of idea. But there's a lot of nuances in making all that work, and a lot of tricks to the trade. And I talk about you know one of the things I always laugh about in LA. I said you know what the guy has a guest list. I don't know if there's anybody even on that. I think it's a fake list that they use every day. He knows if he doesn't know, he's not the right guy. And, and you know, so he knows who's who, right? So people go, I'm on the guest list. And when you say that, well, you got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you, at one point you talk about like, you, you mentioned, you talk about Prince, but you said like, you don't even know sometimes if the person's calling really does work for, um, you use Prince, but whoever it might be, right? Like that's, sometimes that's it could be like, is this person just put, yanking my chain? Right. Um, is this really going to happen? Um, so there's all of that. There's all of this kind of people using <laughs> and, you know, trying to, you know, I call it the Hollywood hustle. And, um, as you know, that, that story ends up pretty funny, but that, that, that particular example of Prince, but yeah, you've got to navigate that and, and, and you got to have the people and, you know, and it, the size of the operation is easy too, because, you know, when that place, for example, when, when my club in Hollywood, when that place was going, you're talking about almost 20 bartenders and, you know, and, tw- you know, three or four different entrances to get in and, and, you know, security guards and, and 2000 people. And so there's a lot to manage. Right. And um, losing your shoes at some point losing when you're going to roll the red carpet. Right, right. Yeah. Getting your shoes stuck on glue <laughs> because the opening night, the guy's late with the carpet, of course. And and you decide, well, I'm going to pull a Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> and those shoes are gone for good. <laughs> So one of the things I really love too, like you mentioned going to Singapore is you kind of talk about what it means for you to to go from New York to Boston to Los Angeles and then like literally halfway across the world, right? And and kind of that that this wasn't, at least for you, these decisions were not ones where you were like, all right, I'm just going to send some people over there. But you really went all in like you're like i'm gonna go here i'm gonna learn the language i'm gonna try and be a part of this space so could you talk a little bit about like that that, those kind of decisions yeah that was a tough one because so to follow you know i kind of started in boston and then going to new york and then in la and then at, at the time i had clubs in all those cities and then singapore came about because they were building a large casino and the guys that uh, that own uh, the um, it was uh, Sheldon Adelson um, and the guys that had the Venetian were opening up the biggest casino in Asia and they wanted me to open up a club there. And that was a tough one because that to me was, OK, when are you going to get a chance in your life to do this? So I really at that point in time chose adventure, meaning you're getting older. I didn't even know. I thought. Singapore was Hong Kong. I mean, they're not even close to each other. I didn't have any idea. I'd never been to Southeast Asia. And I go, when are you going to get this opportunity? 
So it was a tough one because I thought I was going to be going back and forth. And that I get into the urinal syndrome thing there because I'm in Singapore. You know, it's the long, the longest flight in the world is L.A. to Singapore. So not over 19 hours nonstop. And that's a tough one. So you're not flying back. You're not commuting back and forth on a weekly basis when, you know, and it's not a cheap flight. So and then when I got there, that was another, you know, sort of culture shock. I had to learn how to navigate business. You know, it's a it's predominantly there's a the Singaporean culture intertwined with the Chinese culture. And now I know why there's not a, now there's no nightclubs, American nightclubs or nightlife brands in China. It's not easy. It was tough doing business there, which precluded me from, you know, the, you know, going back and forth. So I was there for over five years and I only got back to the, the States three times. Which is rough, right? Rough, <laughs> trying rough. You to lose track of everything. You lose track of your life and it's not, you can't, it's the opposite, you know, exactly 12 hours time difference too. So, you know, days, you know, you just, that's tough. You lose track and, and then you have to make a decision. Do I, am I going to live here? Or am I, am I coming back? So I decided to make a trek back to the U S and, and then COVID hits, right? So your business, your livelihood is based on this, these spaces that when COVID hits, are shut down. Right. And so can you talk a little bit, right. And you, and you just, you know, that move back and, and what that meant for you and also what sort of you were sort of seeing with COVID and what was happening. I mean, you know, the worst thing about COVID is, and then you got the, you got the stops and starts, right. So, you know, you, it, it, it's a tough business and the, my venues are independent, which means it's not like I'm part of a chain. So, you know, they function and, and, you know, it's, it's, we're on an island. So um, if you remember, you know, COVID then, oh, it's going to get better. And then they sort of like change the rules and you start again, and then you stop again. And that's, that's death. You bring staff back. And you, so, you know, you gotta, we decided just to let it sit through the whole process. And it's just too hard to, you know, to, and, and now, you know, as we come out of COVID, I see a very interesting world out there that uh, you know I'm working on um, to try to, um, I guess we, we maybe capitalize on. I see, I see interaction and nightlife a little bit different than before COVID. I see people wanting to, you know, uh, they value, you know, that sort of getting together a lot more than they, you know, because of all that. But they want to do it simply. And, and easily and, you know, the, you know, in a nice environment where in my world, that, that big nightlife world has moved a lot to Las Vegas and in places like that, where the, you know, the DJs are paid a million and a half dollars to play for a few hours. And, you know, it costs $5,000 to sit down at a table. So I see it moving away to a more, I get maybe a more simpler time, you could say but a more ease of interaction. So that's what, that's what I'm working hard on right now. Well, and you have gone, right. So New York and, and LA areas both have lots of transplants, people coming from all over. And, you know, you, when you were in Boston, you were in the space where you had lived um, before. So now you're in Memphis and you kind of talk about the different struggles with coming in and living in a space that you were, did not grow up in, that you're not a part That's of right. That's and right. what that kind of means and how you have to negotiate that too um, as a business person and just as wanting to 
really making that space it making that space your home and what that looks like yeah it was interesting because when i was in singapore i ended up here in memphis because um, my father was becoming ill and i have family here and i thought okay like and then and then uh, i was introduced to a project here that i really liked so but it wasn't necessarily that i was going to stay here like I was LA and Memphis and, you know, I do a project in Memphis, right? It's a historic town, great music town. But then, you know, the uh, pandemic changed that equation. So then I sort of made this the permanent home because, you know, it's been going on for a few years and it's a small town. So it's a huge adjustment for me. And I thought Singapore was small, you know, and it's different, but I'm, I'm learning a lot. I mean, the, the, the tongue in cheek chapter Heading of the last chapter is called, you know, I go through all these things in the last chapter in Memphis is called culture shock. Right? <laughs> and, and so, you know, I've seen things that I've learned a lot. Like I, I had never spent time in the South. This is, so I'm learning a lot about the South and people and it's very interesting. And so, yeah, it's been quite an adjustment and doing business in a smaller, a smaller setting. You, you just keep learning. You just keep moving forward. Right. And I love that, that you kind of um, sort of introduce us to all these sort of different aspects of nightlife and culture and what that kind of means to be in this space and be in this business. And like what you said at the sort of earlier on that people use these nightclub places wherever they might be to meet new people, to have this sort of shared experience that they can have. And it, it might, you know, there are some elements of it that might look different, but we're all right. We're going out and we go to the nightclub and hoping for that sort of shared experience. That's right. It's, you know, nightlife in all its forms is sort of a universal experience where people can sort of leave their day behind and let themselves be. That's what I found in New York. Just be who you want to be. And um, let off some steam and enjoy yourself if, if it's only for a few hours. I think that's, that's essential, I think, to our culture. I mean, I, I say in the book, think about a world where there is no nightlife. It, you know, it's a hard place to imagine. And and like you said, so you think nightlight sort of moving in sort of a, 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 a direction of being, you know, less... Like being more um, intimate, maybe. I don't know if that's the right word. Are there any other kind of trends or things that you're seeing or that you are hoping for um, in these next few years that um, will happen? I, I, you know, being an old man now in the, you know, I'm like the guy that's still standing right in the industry. You know, I see a lot of people, everything that's, that comes around goes around, right? So I was just in LA and everyone's like, oh, we're doing these really exclusive VIP clubs where you have to be a member. And I was like, I did that crap in 19 and 2000. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, like they're bringing it around because younger people have never seen it. And all that's good, by the way, it's not that. I take a more global, I take a more less reactionary view. And I just think that, that uh, people have, about, I think we're going into a recession right now. I think there's a lot of money that young people have borrowed during the recession. I mean, during the pandemic, and that's all going to come due. And I think so. People aren't going to have the money that, that they that they've had, you know, maybe before the pandemic. And I also think they want, in my view, global view, is they want an easier, more interactive experience where they can talk to people in an environment where they can just meet people. And I think that's going to be where, where things are going to go. So that's what I'm working on right now. So 
Which sounds great. And I have to say, because you brought up the, um, you know, members only, your idea of having three different colors of cards, like membership cards that um, were numbered like zero to 99 was, I was like, this is genius. <laughs> right, it worked. It's I all, it's all, right. I, I, you know, that's what I'm saying. You go to, it's kind of ridiculous when you go to Hollywood and you just have to do what you got to do. And, uh, and there you go. Everybody, everybody wins. Yeah, we, you all get a card. It's going to be a different color, but you all get you a, all card. Get a card. Right. <laughs> right. It's exclusive, but we printed 4,500 of them, but that's okay. <laughs> so, I mean, we could probably talk about like nightclubs and everything forever, but I'll ask you my sort of final question. Like, so is the book out now or is it coming out? And oh, is there any... Okay, so it's out. Are there any promotional things that you have going on with this, or anything else you're working on that you know you want to promote? Well, I'm, I'm, um, I've been doing a book tour. The book came out June seventh. It's available everywhere, Amazon, anywhere where books are sold. Um, you know, I have I have an event coming up in Minneapolis, um, and then one in Chicago. Uh, so uh, I'm going to email you the uh, the the Chicago date at the at the bookseller, but. Um, yeah, so we've been doing we've been doing a few of these, and uh, so that's it. And I'm working on sort of my next iteration of nightlife, and enjoying. I'm really enjoying with my wife, and I'm still on a pandemic lifestyle, so I got to move away from that. I mean, my dog is uh, you know if I'm if I spend more than two hours away from my dog, I think I'm getting separation anxiety. So once I once I get through all these phobias, I'll be back out there, and you'll see me. <laughs> All right. Well, it, it has been wonderful talking with you, uh, Steve Thank Edelman, you. who has written Nocturnal Admissions uh, Behind the Scenes at Tunnel, Limelight, Avalon, and other legendary nightclubs. Steve, thanks so much for talking with me for new books and popular culture. Appreciate it.